Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, Vladimir Putin and Russia are now invading Ukraine. That action has caused us to take a second look at the cozy relationship many Christian leaders have had with Putin over the years. And the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee is meeting this week, and that meeting is making news. We'll bring an update. We begin today with details of a newly released report on Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. A report was released on Wednesday on the internal culture at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and it found leaders at the ministry were blinded by loyalty to the founder, overlooking Ravi Zacharias' misconduct for years, and they used ministry funds to sue an abuse survivor, and they misled the public in the process. The report came from Guidepost Solutions, and it was delivered to RZIM's board, which remains anonymous, seven months ago. Yeah, according to the report, board members had full control over the public release of the document, which was posted to the ministry's website less than an hour before the evangelical magazine Christianity Today published a story detailing the report's contents. In an unsigned letter from the board, the board placed blame for the organization's failures squarely on the shoulders of Ravi Zacharias himself, who died in 2020. Once a beloved preacher, author, and Christian apologist, the now disgraced Zacharias had a long pattern of sexual misconduct and abuse, according to a report released in 2021 by RZIM. The board also admitted it had used ministry funds to pay for Zacharias's legal bills, despite a 2017 public statement to the contrary, and that it had failed to correct that statement. Uh, still, and this is one of the astonishing aspects of this report, the board raised doubts about the accuracy of the report itself. The anonymous board also claimed that it was being transparent by releasing the report. You say one of many astonishing aspects. What are some of the others? Well, the fact that the board still won't identify itself is one. The fact that it's still not taking full responsibility for the collapse of the organization. Keep in mind, it is the board that has ultimate responsibility uh, for the health and the overall governance of an organization. The fact that the organization forced a sexual abuse victim to sign a non-disclosure agreement and has not even now released that victim, Laurieann Thompson, from that non-disclosure agreement. And it paid a million dollars in legal fees and settlement costs in that case. The fact that senior executives of RZM are actually still operating, though under another name. I mean, these are just a few that I can name off the top of my head, Natasha, and the list goes on. One of many new revelations that this report showed is that the guidepost discovered leaders at RZIM had been aware of allegations of inappropriate behavior by Zacharias since at least 2008. Yeah, for years, Zacharias traveled with a female masseuse, which raised eyebrows among some of the staff. But anyone who questioned Ravi Zacharias was, and this is from the report, were sent to Siberia, a term for being sidelined or marginalized by RZIM leaders. 
Warren, for all of the new information in this report, there's a lot that's left out. Yeah, in the report, GuideStar Solutions said that the RZIM board had withheld information from the GuidePost team working on the report and refused to allow GuidePost to name board members in the report that it had spoken with during its five-month investigation. And, you know, again, I just want to reiterate that not knowing who the board is and their unwillingness to take responsibility uh, for the wrongdoing that took place there is, uh, you know, probably the the biggest problem uh, in this report and just uh, and the situation generally, and it just goes completely unaddressed. And I should add, there were no stories from abuse survivors themselves. So what happens now? Well, Guidepost concludes its assessment with a series of recommendations for RZIM, but RZIM has essentially shut down during the seven months uh, since it delivered the report and today when a new ministry has already been started in its place. That ministry is called Lighten, and the CEO is Ravi Zacharias's daughter, Sarah Davis, who was also previously RZIM's CEO. Uh, the new ministry includes a number of former RZIM staff and reportedly has offices is right there in RZIM's building. Now, again, huge problems with this arrangement because the original RZIM ministry had no oversight. We don't know who the board is. They just transferred, at least we think, we really don't know for sure, but it's likely that they just transferred assets from RZIM, could be millions of dollars, into this new organization. The bottom line is that Ministry Watch is strongly recommending that donors refrain from giving money either to RZIM or to the new Lighten Ministry. Hmm. Do you have anything else to add? Well, two things. First, Ministry Watch raised concerns about RZIM and Ravi Zacharias personally back in 2017. Now, lots of people say that they were shocked by what has happened at RZIM, but I want to say with great love and respect to those people who loved Ravi, and in fact, I was one of them. I knew Ravi. I considered us friends that you simply weren't paying attention if you were shocked by what you're learning now. I want to recommend to our listeners that they go to Ministry Watch and use the search engine to find those stories that we've been publishing. We did more than 80 stories that at least mentioned RZIM or Ravi Zacharias just since 2017. And secondly, I'd like to shout out to Christianity Today, especially uh, their investigative reporter, Daniel Silliman. As we said at the top of this report, Natasha, Guidepost delivered the report to RZIM seven months ago, and RZIM leadership just sat on it. And it's pretty clear that they had no intention, or it appears that they had no intention of releasing this report to the public. And it was only released after Daniel Silliman, the Christianity Today editor, published a deep analysis of the report that he had acquired through his investigative um, activities. I think it's fair to say that without Daniel Silliman's reporting, this report would still be hidden from the public. It's a, one more example of the importance of investigative journalism in the effort to keep powerful organizations honest and transparent. Mm -hmm. 
Now let's look at one more story before we take our first break. It's the story of a Christian school in Texas that recently saw the arrest of five staff persons for failing to report a hazing incident that may have involved sexual abuse. Yeah, three administrators and two coaches at Midland Christian School in Midland, Texas, were charged with failure to report with intent to conceal, neglect, or abuse. Those are state felonies. A student also had been arrested in connection with this incident. Yeah, court documents said that Midland Police Department detectives were told by the victim that an assault had occurred January 20th in the locker room of the school's campus. The victim said that he was hit and then assaulted with a baseball bat as part of what he was told was a freshman initiation. The record shows that one administrator knew of the incident that very day on January the 20th, and another was notified the next day, but neither reported the incident to authorities, which they are required by law to do. The police department said it has emails showing other school administrators were aware of the sexual assault as well. On February 14th, the school told detectives that it would not provide them with any documents regarding the assault without a search warrant. In a statement regarding the incident and subsequent arrests, Jason Stockstill, president of Midland Christian School's Board of Trustees, said that the school had taken unspecified disciplinary action in response to the incident. Yeah, he said that school officials have and will continue to cooperate with the investigation and that under advice from legal counsel, his statement that they were cooperating would be the only statement on the matter at this time. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, we take a look at the cozy relationships some Christian leaders have had with Vladimir Putin over the years. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the story I promised before the break. It's the story of how some Christian organizations have been lured into cozy relationships with Vladimir Putin in recent years, and whether that relationship will have negative consequences for them now that Putin has invaded Ukraine. Yeah, for most of the past century, Americans, uh, conservative Christians, And conservative politicians were united in the firm belief that communist USSR and the later Russian nation were anti-American, anti-God, and a threat to the world. 
But that script has been flipped over the past decade as traditional family values have brought together supporters of a Christian America and what has come to be called Holy Russia. A handful of U.S.-based Christian nonprofits have consistently praised Russian President Vladimir Putin as a global beacon of hope, both for families and for the survival of Christianity. Can you give me an example? Well, one example occurred in February and March of 2014. Putin had just invaded Ukraine an earlier time and had annexed the Crimean Peninsula. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association featured Putin on the cover of the March 14 issue of Decision magazine, ignoring the invasion, but praising the dictator's stand protecting children from what it called propaganda of homosexuality and pedophilia. To be clear, I'm not endorsing President Putin, wrote Franklin Graham, BGEA's president and CEO, in that 2014 cover story. Isn't it sad, though, he went on to say, that America's own morality has fallen so far that on this issue, protecting children from any homosexual agenda or propaganda, Russia's standard is higher than our own. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is not the only organization with close ties to Russia. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's important to note that having some dealings with the Russian government have been essential for Christian ministry simply to be able to do ministry in that country. But there should be a bright line drawn between making efforts to get cooperation and actual praise of what is essentially a totalitarian regime. And you're saying that Christian leaders stepped over that bright line. Well, I think so, at least in a couple of cases. Larry Jacobs, the managing director of the World Congress of Families, said, I think Russia is the hope for the world right now. Uh, He said this in 2014 when the World Congress of Families had planned to do its biennial conference in Russia. Russia's invasion of Crimea led the World Congress of Families to cancel its 2014 gathering in Moscow that year, but the nonprofit continues to partner with Russia's religious and political leaders. And I should add, in a spirit of full disclosure, that I was a plenary speaker at a World Congress of Families conference in 2015 in Salt Lake City. So I'm very aware of the good work that this group is doing and of the good work of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. But it's important that we as Christian leaders always stand for biblical truth, and that means being clear-eyed about what's going on in the world and being courageous to say things that are true, but which may not be in the best interest uh, even of our ministries in the short term. Some Christian leaders are doing just that. Yeah, Russell Moore is one. He's the director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project and former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention. He's pushed back on the idea of using religion as a tool for gaining political power. He said this, if the church is simply a cultural vehicle for national stability and pride, then one can hardly expect dictators to do anything other than manipulate it. In his recent article in Christianity Today, he said, the witness of the church itself is at stake because a religion that dismisses bloodthirsty behavior doesn't even believe in its own teachings on objective morality, much less in a coming judgment seat of Christ. 
Why would anyone listen to such a religion on how to find peace with God and gain entrance into the life to come? He went on to say, evangelical Christians should watch the way of Vladimir Putin, and we should recognize it whenever we are told that we need a Pharaoh or a Barabbas or a Caesar to protect us from real or perceived enemies. Whenever that happens, we should remember how to say in any language, yet. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee is meeting this week, and it's the first meeting since the resignation of more than a dozen committee members last fall. What's happening there? Well, the Nashville-based executive committee, which oversees the business of the nation's largest Protestant denomination in between its annual meetings, will hear reports from SBC leaders, get updates on the convention's finances, and begin the work of searching for a new permanent leader to replace Ronnie Floyd. Uh, The committee's former president and CEO resigned last October. The committee now has 68 members, but it also has, in addition to Ronnie Floyd, 18 vacancies. The meeting started on Monday, and by Tuesday, it had already made a bit of news. Yeah, Southern Baptist leaders announced on Tuesday that they had reached a resolution with a sexual abuse survivor whose story had been mishandled when she came forward in 2019. Jennifer Lyle is the name of that woman, a former publishing executive for Lifeway Christian Resources, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. She told Baptist Press in 2019 that she had experienced abuse at the hands of a former SBC seminary professor. She made her story public out of concerns that her abuser was still in ministry outside of the Southern Baptist Convention. Instead, the abuse was characterized in a news story by Baptist Press as a morally inappropriate relationship rather than abuse itself. As a result of the backlash from that news story, for which Baptist Press, the official SBC News service, later apologized, Lyle lost her reputation, her job, and her health. Yeah, but Roland Slade, who is a pastor and now chairman of the SBC's executive committee, announced the resolution this week with Lyle during an afternoon meeting. The Lyle resolution was approved by the entire committee. The SBC executive committee, it says, acknowledges its failure to adequately listen, protect, and care for Jennifer Lyle when she came forward to share her story of abuse by a seminary professor. Baptist Press failed to accurately report the sexual abuse that Jennifer Lyle reported to two SBC entities and to local Southern Baptist churches. Again, I'm quoting from the statement, and the statement further goes on to say, the SBC Executive Committee acknowledges its failures to Ms. Lyle, including the unintentional harm created by its failure to report Ms. Lyle's allegations of non-consensual sexual abuse when those uh, charges were investigated and unequivocally corroborated by SBC entities with authority over Ms. Lyle and her abuser. The SBC Executive Committee apologizes for all the hurt it has caused and is grateful for Ms. Lyle's perseverance and engagement and prays for her complete healing from the trauma that she has endured. And Lyle thanks Slade and other executive committee officers and members, as well as their attorneys, for taking action. 
Yeah, she also accepted the committee's apologies and thanks specifically uh, the man that we mentioned just a few moments ago, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission President or former President Russell Moore and his wife Maria, as well as attorney and abuse advocate Rachel Den Hollander for their friendship and support as well. Our next story involves the pastor of a small independent Baptist church in Virginia. Yeah, a small church, but a big problem. Uh, The pastor of a Baptist church in southwest Virginia has been charged with 30 felony counts of sexual assault against juveniles. Terry Compton is the pastor's name. He's 62 years old, and he's the pastor of Faith Independent Missionary Baptist Church in Damascus, Virginia. He was arrested and charged by the Washington County Sheriff's Office. Compton is charged with 12 counts of taking indecent liberties with children, 12 counts of aggravated sexual battery, three counts of forcible sodomy, and other charges. The abuse allegedly started in 1995 and continued for 26 years. Yeah, officials said that although the initial charges were based on assaults on three minors, multiple victims have since come forward. And uh, the Washington County Commonwealth attorney, Joshua Cumbau, told a local news station that this case is really in its infancy. He just got arrested last week, and he added, this is a big case. Compton is being held in Southwest Virginia Regional Jail without bond. Well, Ron, we're going to take another break. When we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. We like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, we have an in-depth story about how some churches are coming out of the COVID pandemic, and the range of responses that we've seen is pretty interesting. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, before the pandemic, uh, the Potter's House of Denver had plenty of use for its 3,500-seat sanctuary in the southeast corner of the Colorado capital. But in early January, the megachurch announced that it was going to sell its building while it would continue to hold services online, as it's been doing for nearly two years. Pastor Touré Roberts said that the building needed significant repairs and that COVID-19 shutdowns had made maintaining it impractical, although some in-person activities such as the church's food bank would continue. 
That's a pretty radical change. Well, it is, but more than 4,000 churches have closed their doors permanently in 2020 alone, according to the Barna Research. So radical steps are sometimes necessary for survival. Perhaps the most troublesome decision a lot of churches are making is whether to stay virtual, go hybrid, or be in-person only. According to Scott Thuma, who's the director of the Hartford Institute for Religion Research at Hartford International University, some churches have hired dedicated online pastors uh, during the COVID pandemic. On the other hand, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we posted a story here at Ministry Watch highlighting the dangers or at least the limitations of online-only worship. At some level, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus showed up for us in person. Uh, that's what the incarnation, in fact, is all about. Uh, is it possible to be the kind of person Jesus intends us to be, or the kind of church that he intends the church to be if we're virtually only? Uh, these are practical logistical considerations that also have theological roots and considerations that we need to deal with as well. Mm-hmm. What ministries did Christina Darnell spotlight in her Ministries Making a Difference column this week? Well, one of them is Advancement Coaching and Consulting, which is a nonprofit that supports pastors and people in ministry through leadership training, community evangelism strategies, coaching and consulting. They named their recipients of the 2022 Advancement Outreach Grant earlier this month, meant for smaller churches with fewer than 150 in average attendance each week. The grants will be distributed among five pastors in churches with local outreach. And there's also a fun story about a swimming pastor. Yeah, founder and pastor of the Orchards Church in Lander, Wyoming, is a man named Todd Pettibone. He raised more than $1,000 and connected in a pretty powerful way with this community by swimming 1,000 laps from September to December of 2021. Pettibone is 43 years old, and he made the commitment in order to connect with the community known for its men's state swimming championships and titles, despite never having been a swimmer before in his life. Uh, The money went to Speed the Light and Boys and Girls Missionary Challenges, two Assemblies of God missions ministries in the area. And by the way, a fifth grader from Orchards even joined him for 100 laps and raised about $166 himself. And a Christian college in Florida has a new president. Yeah, Florida College, which is located in Temple Terrace, Florida, has named John Weaver as its sixth president. Weaver will take over for Buddy Payne, who was president of the college for 12 years. Uh, Weaver will take over in June of this year. Do you have any final thoughts before we go today? Well, a quick reminder, as I mentioned last week and for a couple of weeks now, the Ministries Making a Difference column is made up of information that we get mostly from our readers and listeners. They send us news tips, press releases, emails, and links, and Christina chases down the details. That's how we get a lot of our other stories as well. So if you have a story that you'd like for us to cover or a ministry that you think needs a closer look, please send us an email. Our email address is info at ministrywatch.com. That will come directly to my desk and we'll take it from there. Also a reminder that you can help this program simply by leaving us a rating on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the easier it is for others to find us. It's a quick, easy, and I should add free way that you can support Ministry Watch. Now, if you want to do something 
financially to support us, I just want to remind you that we have a few days left in this month of February. That means that uh, we have a few days left that you can still receive Michael McKenzie's book, Don't Blow Up Your Ministry, as our thank you gift for a donation. Uh, So a donation between now and Monday night will be both a great help to us, but it will also result in you getting a great resource for your personal library. You can go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Diana Kruzman, Audrey Jackson, Steve Raby, Ann Stike, Catherine Post, Bob Smetanya, and Christina Darnell. And special thanks to The Christian Chronicle and the nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's podcast. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.